Turn with me to Hebrews 7. Our author has been writing uh, this epistle to Jewish Hebrew Christians. who are facing persecution. They face it because of their faith in Christ. But our author's concern is less about the persecution they face, though it is real, and more of the temptation that they face, the temptation for ease and comfort, the temptation to drift from Christ. Rather than suffer, some were considering going back to their old uh, Jewish faith with its familiar priests and sacrifices. I suppose uh, the logic was, I'm not denying God, I'm simply going back to an easier way, an an earlier form of worship. The Old Testament worship was uh, useful in its time. But the Old Testament worship with its temple, its priests, and its sacrifices, though it came from God was now obsolete. Old Testament worship was never intended to be permanent. It was always temporary and provisional. It was not an end in itself. The Old Testament and its worship uh, was a type, a taste, a promise of what was to come in Jesus Christ, who is the final temple priest and sacrifice. Jesus comes to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises in such a way that the Old Testament forms disappear. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus is better He is greater, he is superior to everything else. And so our author has been writing this epistle, and in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, he he makes the case how Jesus is superior to angelic beings. And then in chapter 3 and 4, how he's greater than Moses and Joshua. And now here in chapter 7, we'll find that Jesus is superior to Abraham, and he's better than the old Levitic priesthood. The Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated by priests that had to be replaced generation by generation. But Jesus is our eternal high priest who offered the one perfect sacrifice of his own blood to pay for our sins forever. He provides for us eternal redemption. 
because Jesus is of a different priestly order than the Levites. He is a better and a greater high priest. In Hebrews chapter 7, look at verses 17 to 22. For it is witnessed of Jesus. In other words, this is what God is saying. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not with an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what do we know of this Melchizedek? That's what everyone's asking. Not much. In Genesis 14, we read how four Canaanite kings defeat Sodom and her neighboring city-states. They take all the possessions and all the provisions. And they also take a large number of hostages, including Abraham's nephew Lot. And so Abraham takes action. He pursues the four kings with 318 of his own trained men. He divides his forces by night and attacks and defeats the four kings. Abraham is the hero of the battle. He recovers all the plunder and the captives, including his nephew, Lot. And then in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20, after the battle, we hear this. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. That's it. That's what God wants us to know about Melchizedek. That's the only historical mention of this figure in the Old Testament. These three verses. But a thousand years later, 
he is mentioned again. Not in a historical narrative, but in a psalm. David, the king of Israel, writes in Psalm 110, verse 4, this prophetic word inspired by God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. One day, God is saying he will do something new. He will do something different than what he has done before. One day, God would appoint a man to be both king and priest. In the Old Testament, those offices are separate. But they're joined in one person in Melchizedek. And ultimately, joined together in the one person of Christ. And so, in Hebrews, in chapter 6... Verse 19 to 20, it talks about how Jesus has gone behind the curtain, meaning uh, uh, the curtain of the Holy of Holies. Remember the temple? There was the outer court, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, the very presence of God. And what divided the holy place and the Holy of Holies was this curtain. Jesus has gone behind that curtain. Verse 20, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot of uh, talk about who this Melchizedek may be. Some argue he was an angel. Um, But the text doesn't seem to indicate that. Some would say he was Noah's son, Shem. Maybe. But again, the text doesn't say that. In fact, what the text says is we don't know who his father and mother are. He's without genealogy. That doesn't mean he had no genealogy. What that means is we're not told. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know genealogies are a big deal. Let's be honest, more of the Bible is dedicated to genealogies than sometimes we wish, right? Who your father was and who your grandfather was was very important because what you are and what you do is based upon where you came from. And so Melchizedek appears not knowing his father and mother, and he is a priest. How did he become a priest? We don't know other than God appointed him as a priest. Not according to the normal way through genealogy, but directly. Some people have suggested that Melchizedek is a theophany, meaning uh, he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. But if Melchizedek were the pre-incarnate Christ, then in uh, uh, Hebrews 7, verse 3, it would not say he resembles or is like the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus' priesthood is in the order or type of Melchizedek, meaning 
Melchizedek is set forth as a type of Christ. A type is uh, some other person or thing that symbolizes and anticipates the one who is to come. Moses, Israel, King David, all point forward to Christ. The temple, the priests, the, the sacrifices, those are all types of Christ. They promise us of the one who was to come. Don't get so hung up on who is Melchizedek that you miss the point of the passage. Because the point of the passage really isn't about Melchizedek, is it? It's about Jesus Christ. He's the author is trying to teach us something of Christ and who he is to us. And so Melchizedek is this somewhat unknown historical figure who is the type of Christ. He resembles and looks forward to Christ, revealing truths about Jesus. He himself functions as a, a prophetic person. Hebrews 7 describes this Old Testament historical figure so that we understand that Jesus is better, greater than all other Old Testament types and forms. Jesus is the new covenant fulfillment. He is both priest and king. And as we'll see, in him we become priests and kings. How does Melchizedek function in this way? First, Melchizedek prefigures Christ as king. In Hebrews 7, verses 1 and 2, we're told that there are two meanings to his name. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace, both descriptive of Christ. Jesus is the righteousness of God fulfilled for us. Jesus is the righteousness of God completely and forever fulfilled for us. He obeyed God perfectly in all of life. And then he died, receiving the just judgment that our sin deserves. His life and his death are imputed to us by faith. And so in him we have been justified, meaning we've been declared righteous on the basis of what Christ merited for us. And because we are now righteous in the sight of God, we have peace with God. 
Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. They meet together in the person of Jesus Christ. We have been justified, and because we are justified, we are now reconciled with God. The thing that separated us from God was our sin, but Jesus has taken care of the sin problem so our relationship with God can be restored. Romans 5, uh, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Note the order. Only as Jesus has achieved righteousness by his life, and secured that same righteousness for us by his death, can we have peace with God? It's made available only in that order. The great 19th century preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, says this. He puts it this way. There could be no true peace that was not grounded upon righteousness. And out of righteousness, peace is sure to spring up. That is a eternal truth of God. And so this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus but you think you have peace with God, you don't. You are at hostility with God. And his judgment is still upon you. But there is time and there is hope. Turn to Christ Believe on what he's done. Ask him to forgive you. And you can receive the the righteousness and the peace that God provides. As you watch the video, even as Christians we go, I don't know if I could do that. God is able to give us what we need when we need it. His Spirit provides for us all that we need. All the spiritual blessings are ours in the heavenly places in Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been justified. You have peace. You don't have to earn God's favor. You can't make things right with God. He must do that. But we're wired in that way, aren't we? 
We think we have to earn people's love. We have to do certain things or they're unhappy with us. God is eternally happy with you in Christ. Eternally happy with you. He loves you. Now that love sometimes may be difficult, but even his discipline is a loving expression of his character. And so this morning, don't be fearful or tentative with God. Come to him with all your struggles, with all your failures, with all your questions. Turn to Christ and away from self. And so uh, this Melchizedek prefigures Christ as king, but also prefigures him as priest. Our text says Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. When Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father, he became our priest unto salvation forever. There is never a time in our life when Christ does not claim us as his own. There is no sin we have committed or will commit that his blood does not cover. And when you die, you will stand before the throne of God. But Jesus will plead our case. He will be with us and will say, this one's debt is paid in full by my blood. Jesus is our high priest. He is our eternal advocate. Even now, according to Romans 8, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Even when you aren't praying or asking God or even know what you need, Jesus is praying for you. He prays for you according to his righteousness and the love that he has for us so that we can be confident even in the most difficult of circumstances. Our text of Hebrews 7 gives three reasons why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and the Levitic priesthood in uh, Hebrews 7, verses 4 to 8. The first reason that's given is Melchizedek blessed Abraham. In that, and we'll go, so what? Um, in that culture, the inferior receives the blessing from the superior. And so uh, Melchizedek the superior blesses Abraham. In the same way, number two, Abraham gives a tithe, a 10% to Melchizedek. 
Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Just as we might give a tithe to God because God is greater, so Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. And the third reason given in those few verses is that, and it's related to the second, and really a transition, a Levi, and by extension the Levitic priesthood, also gave a tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. Abraham is uh, Levi's grandfather. or actually his uh, great-grandfather. Uh, and, and Levi was not yet born. So in some sense, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, so did Levi. This third reason uh, is really getting us to where the author wants us is this transition to argue that the priesthood of Melchizedek, and by implication, Christ, is better than the Old Testament priesthood of Levi. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Uh, Aaron was the first high priest and was a descendant of Levi. What the verse is asking is, if Levi and Aaron, this Old Testament priesthood, was sufficient to make us perfect, to solve our problem, then there wouldn't have to be another priesthood. There was no perfection attained through Old Testament priests and sacrifices. When I say perfection, what I mean is completion. The Old Testament priests and sacrifices were incomplete apart from Christ. The blood of animals could not atone for sin. They could not bring the righteousness the people needed. Why? Because of what I said earlier, Old Testament priests and sacrifices were temporary and provisional. They were efficacious unto salvation, but only as they were united in faith to God who would provide the final sacrifice in Jesus Christ. They these Old Testament sacrifices were not an end in themselves. They pointed forward to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. These Old Testament sacrifices were efficacious for salvation as they functioned as types, as they pointed forward to the time of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Through faith in God, the Old Testament sacrifices were spiritually connected to the reality of Jesus' death on the cross. And only Jesus' 
life and death can bring us salvation. Jesus is a better priest because he is of a different order like Melchizedek. Not according to the law, not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And so, verse 16 of Hebrews 7, Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement. In other words, not by the way the law normally would prescribe concerning bodily descent, but by the power of the indestructible life. Jesus is appointed high priest, even though he's not of the line of Levi. How? Jesus has been appointed directly by God by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Think of uh, um, Romans 1 verse 4. It says this, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by, on the basis of, his resurrection from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and by raising him from the dead, he declared him to be a high priest forever. He is proclaiming that Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled all of God's righteousness, that the wrath of God has been satisfied, and that Jesus has now been raised and entered into a new phase of redemptive history. He is now high priest. And so his resurrection is his anointing to be high priest and to provide that indestructible life to us. He gives us eternal life when we have faith in him. He is high priest of a better covenant because he is a better sacrifice who died once for all, becoming our eternal redemption. Verse 18, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It wasn't useless, but it has become useless. Talking about the Old Testament forms of worship. The, 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 the commandments, the sacrifices, the priests were God's means of salvation in the Old Testament as they pointed to the Christ who was to come. But that system of priests and sacrifices based upon the law has now become obsolete. It is now useless because there is a new reality in Jesus. And this new reality is based on a better high priest. Jesus has come and fulfilled the promises of God manifested in the Old Testament. The old covenant with the Levitical priesthood has been fulfilled. It has done what it was supposed to do, and now it is fading away. 
That's what he's trying to communicate to these Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to the old faith. He's telling them it had its place, it had its function. But now to go back to that, now that Jesus has come, is actually to deny Christ. You're saying his death is not enough, that his priesthood isn't good enough. His sacrifice and his priesthood is all we need. Jesus is made a priest by God who has sworn an oath that he is our priest forever and our salvation is complete in him. We simply await the day when the fullness of our salvation will be revealed. When Christ returns, everything will be made right. Our bodies and our minds renewed. The struggle with sin will fade away. The old nature will be completely gone. All the things that are now bothering you as you get older, they will fade away. When I pulled in this morning, I pulled into a parking spot straight as an arrow. I got out of the car. The car was crooked. The tire was half on a line. And and I said to Jennifer, what is going on? I mean, mean, it's not just... It happens once, okay, it happens once. You just misjudged. In the last few weeks, I've seen this same thing a dozen times. I think I'm driving as good as I used to. And I am. You have a wife like that too? She thinks she's a better driver. You're not, trust me. Um, It doesn't matter. We're falling apart, folks. You can deny it all you want. I got up this morning. Now, normally I'm up before Jennifer wakes up, but I came down. I'm looking at her across the room. I know my eyesight's not as good as it used to be. I couldn't really see her face. My eyes aren't what they... Maybe that's the problem. Uh, Let me take that back and use a different example. I just have to figure out where I'm at now. (laughs) Jesus, as I read earlier, is a guarantor or a guarantee of a better covenant. Part of the reason it's better is because it's forever. It doesn't have to get repeated. There's nothing we add to it. It's just given to us as a gift. 
It's better because it promises that eyesight, all all that stuff, it's going to be perfect. It's better because it takes us where God originally wanted us to go. There was a, um, a professor at Princeton Seminary at the end of the 19th and the 20th century, and he would say, uh, eschatology precedes soteriology. And what he means is this. Eschatology, the ultimate reality where God is taking us, the eternal life that he's promised for us, precedes the fall. Soteriology being the doctrines of salvation. Where God is taking us in Christ is what God intended for us in the beginning. And so what God intended for us all is to be a nation of priests and kings. Think back to Genesis Two, God says, let us make man in our image. And then he tells man, be fruitful and multiply and subdue or rule the earth. God creates us in his image to reflect his character and to rule under his authority. The Garden of Eden is where God met with man. The place where humanity had intimacy with God, fellowship with God. And so the garden was a type of temple, and Adam was a type of priest, mediating God's presence to the rest of creation. The garden was also the epicenter of God's kingdom on earth. Outside the garden was what? Wilderness. God places Adam in the garden and says, subdue, rule the earth. Take my kingdom, which is in this garden place, and spread it everywhere. And so Adam was a type of king. And that's what God wanted for us. We were created to be priests and king, kings, but we forfeited all of that in the fall. In Adam, we rebelled against God. We were exiled from the garden paradise away from the presence of God. We were cut off from the tree of life, which uh, uh, represents God's blessing and eternal life in fellowship with him. But in Christ, all of that is restored. Revelation 2.7, in Christ, we have the right to eat of the tree of life again, which is in the paradise of God. We were aliens and strangers to the promises of God, having no hope in the world and without God. But now we have been brought near and made fellow citizens and members of God's family. And in Romans 8, 14 to 17, we are told, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We are in Christ, and we share in his royal rule. 
Hear this amazing promise found in uh, 2 Timothy 2. If by faith we have died with Christ, then we will also live with Christ. If we endure, then we will also reign with him. We will rule with Christ. Jesus is the second Adam who is both king and priest, and he shares that with us. Hear 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. We are part of a royal priesthood with Christ. And so once again, we can mediate God's presence to the rest of creation. We make God's righteousness and his rule known as he dwells in us by his spirit. In the Old Testament, and I'm almost done, in the Old Testament... Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. Remember we talked about that behind the curtain? The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Only the high priest could enter there, and he could only do it once a year, and he had to come with the blood of a sacrifice. Jesus is our high priest, and he is our sinless sacrifice. So think again about what I read earlier In Hebrews 6, Jesus has gone behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Verse 20 of chapter 6, as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, where he is, we can go. He has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ has obtained perfect and complete satisfaction of the righteousness of God, and now we have every right to enter into the very holy place of God because we have peace with God based on the righteousness of Christ. Hebrews 4, we just heard a little earlier, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens been our forerunner. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses or our struggles or our pain. He's been touched by it all. But he is one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, the the holy of holies, that we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. He is God's promise that we are united to Christ forever and we are safe in him. And so this morning, wherever you're at, Come to Christ. Come to the throne of grace. Come in humility, but come in confidence. 
come in repentance. Turning from sin and self and turning to Christ who saves. Come to find grace. Come to find mercy. Come to find all that you need today. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we know these truths. We confess them as real, but so often we don't live in the truth that we know. Uh, Father, forgive us for doubts. Forgive us for forgetting. Help us to acknowledge our struggles, to come to you in every moment, in every difficulty, to give thanks for every good thing that we have, Father, that you are the source of life for us. Father, we love you, we worship you, and we ask you to work in us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.